stay hungry, stay foolish. Our next guest on the Innovation Show is a British scientist, author, broadcaster, and member of the House of Lords. She has 32 honorary degrees, is an honorary Australian, a CBE holder, a French Légion d'honneur holder, amongst a plethora of other degrees, including an honorary fellowship of the Royal College of Physicians, and many, many other awards. She has written many bestsellers, including A Day in Life of the Brain, Mind Change, The Private Life of the Brain, The Human Brain, Brain Story, ID, Tomorrow's People, and the novel 2121. She is a driver of research in Alzheimer's, ADD, and how technology is having a disturbing effect on our brains. It is an honor to welcome Professor Baroness Susan Greenfield. Welcome to the show, Susan. Oh, it's a great pleasure, Aidan, to be here. Thank you. Everything I've read about you, one thing that really resonated was your childhood and the, yeah. the way you've basically built your career from the, the foundations of your childhood and the lessons you learned in that childhood. Could we talk about that to begin? Of course, because it, it means a lot. And I think it is important nowadays, especially in a world where you have these overachieving parents, you know, what they call the, the tiger parents, you know, who um, really want their kids to be on the go all the time and cramming them all the time. Uh, because I was born poor, and I think this was the biggest break I ever had, um, uh, my parents couldn't afford things. So I was just on my own allowed to dream and to draw and to read and to think. And as long as I didn't make any noise or intrude on people too much, they just left me to it. And I think that that was a brilliant thing. I think it was very good as a kid to be bored because if you are bored, you make your own entertainment and stimulation. You draw your own pictures. You decide to go to the library. You make up your own stories, you know. Um, and I think rather than being on the back foot, if you are the person who's in control deciding want of a better word on your own narrative what you want to do i think that's a very good thing you know um and you live in your imagination do you remember when you were a kid Aiden, perhaps saying to your friends yeah let's make up a game i still let's do it <laughs> yeah let's make up a game now <laughs> and, and you know uh, this box can be a castle or it can be a car or a rocket ship you know because the parents can't afford those things so i think being left alone to have this rather dreamy childhood where I had time and I had time to think. I think that was a good thing. And the other good thing about being born poor was learning the work ethic. And I still remember this when I was 15. Perhaps you did the same. Um, I had to get a Saturday job. And I remember working at Woolworths you know, um, and bringing home a pound. So it shows how old I am and how long ago that was for eight hours work. And when I came back, I remember my mum saying to me, you can do what you like with that money. I can't tell you what to do with it yeah. because yeah. you've earned it. And you know, I think... That still makes me kind of choke up a bit because, you know, this notion when you're 15 of your mum saying, I can't tell you what to do. I can't tell you what to do with that because it's yours and you've earned it. Yeah. Now, how many middle class kids, um, you know, who have the banker mum and dad giving them endless treats and, and so on? You know, aren't they missing out on that? Aren't they missing out on that fabulous feeling of empowerment and freedom and independence and the confidence that, that gives you when you've earned your own money? And I think. Again, that was a lesson my mum taught me, um, that I feel sorry for people that have just had handouts all the time and haven't had to get that feeling. You've earned the money, and no one can tell you what to do. And I think, for me, that's the sort of you know, message of my life is 
not liking people telling me what to do. If you do it yourself, you're not dependent on people. But but that lesson is you're almost deprived of that lesson if you're too wealthy or, or you're not made, yeah, made go through these, those. Yeah. yeah. And, and also um, again, you know, if you're poor, your skin's good because you're not under sun damage. I remember <laughs> I remember all my mates going off on exotic Mediterranean holidays and coming back brown, whereas we were sitting in Eastbourne or Bournemouth in a bus shelter in the rain, you know, so playing crazy golf if it, in between the showers. You know? so, there was always that advantage as well. Yeah, and there was, there was a great story of you where in one of these imagination bursts, you um, went to the local butchers and bought a, yes. ra- a rabbit. <laughs> yeah, I did that because I was just curious. And again, this is why having the, the parents I had who were on the one hand totally loving and supportive and at the same time had no money. That's the perfect combination. You need both, yeah? yeah? And so when I said I was going to the, you know, oh, fine, dear. You know, it's like when I said I was going to do Greek. You know, oh, fine, dear. You know, you know best. And so my little brother, who was then about three, um, I was about 15 or 16, and he actually watched me do this dissection with my mother's dressmaking scissors, you know, which was not ideal. And I remember him saying as he looked at this dead rabbit, he said, when the rabbit was alive, he could see with those eyes, but now he can't. The eyes are still there, but he can't see anymore. And I thought for a three-year-old, that was quite a deep thought, you know? Very, very deep. And, and it, yeah. it, But it really launched your brain then on, you know, deeper questions, philosophy, what's going yeah. on with the mind, well, etc. Yeah, I think if you have time, and nowadays I think kids are time-deprived or they're so hooked onto the screen, you know, where it's mandating to give past responses all the time, I think... If you have time on your hands, you do have time to have in between what comes in and what goes out. You have time to add your own thoughts and ideas and perspective and to join up the dots in your way. And I think that's a very important thing to do because that is the start of them being creative because it's only when you have a framework and you make unusual associations, you know, compared to the normal ones, that you can actually appreciate that that's something that's meaningful or interesting. Whereas if you're living in the moment and responding to inputs very quickly or multitasking, when do you have chance to add your own value? When do you have chance to add your own thoughts, your own perspective on things? You know, you just become a kind of second-rate computer otherwise. Yeah, this is one thing I've, I've really noticed. Which you, Science has, like many things, become everybody's collecting dots. So there's so much data in the world that they're collecting. Indeed. So glad you've raised that. I think this is one of the big problems with modern science in that people are very impressed by data. Um, and there was Karl Popper, a philosopher from a long time ago, said science should really have falsifiable hypotheses. That's to say you should be able to frame a question that you can test. Yeah? And nowadays people are so frightened that they'll have the wrong answer because then they won't get grants. So much easier to have a very glamorous technique that's very powerful, but actually you don't understand what you see. So this is something called bias-free research, B-I-A-S, free. And it suggests that um, you don't have a hypothesis. You just collect lots and lots of data. You don't know what it means, of course, but you collect lots of data and the technique's very trendy and glamorous and expensive. But you don't actually understand what it is that you are seeing because you haven't interrogated it with a question. And I think that this is one of the problems of much of modern science is that people have forgotten to ask questions and to formulate hypotheses in the enthusiasm to indulge in these wonderful techniques. And again, as I say, if you do that, if you are bias-free and you're not asking questions, then you're not going to be wrong. So we had Ash Moira on the show last week, and he, he runs a company called Lean Stack, Lean Canvas, and their, their whole hypothesis yeah. is to create those falsifiable experiments. If I'm going to go and create yeah. this product, is it going to fail? And exact same thing as you said, Susan, 
He said yeah. that most CEOs and leaders don't want to lose face in front of their people. So they, exactly. won't, they exactly. won't do it. But it's the way you succeed by failing. Yeah, yeah. And I think back to what we were saying earlier, I think if you've had, I wouldn't say struggle, because as I say, I think I had an ideal childhood, so I don't paint myself as some Dickensian victim, you know. But I think if you've had to do it for yourself, yeah, then I think you have a confidence that allows you to risk being wrong. And that's, I think the best thing one could do for a kid is to give them the confidence. So as someone said, you know, if you never stretch yourself, how do you, how do you know how? Yeah, only those who go too far know how truly far they can go. Yeah, I you know, that. I, I think that. that. But that does require confidence. And sadly, nowadays, that seems a commodity that people aren't putting much prize on. And I think it's very important to give kids the confidence to be themselves, to respect confidence in others and individuals of others. So that, because inevitably, we're all going to have problems, whether they're a medical, financial, professional, personal, you know, the best you can do is have the confidence to cope with that yeah. and, and, and strength of character to cope with it. And, and as you said, when we don't let children go through that learning opportunity, we deprive them of the yeah. opportunity. I think if you turn to little machines, and a long, long time ago, there was a way before the screen technologies, there was a, a rather strange program in the States called Hot Housing. I don't know if you've heard of this, but... They would have these little children and make them learn off endless facts and they'd play the violin standing on one leg and do lots of parts. You know, so they were very good performers and they could recite things off. But I don't know how much original thought was there or how much strength of character was there. Yeah. And, and do, you know, do you know what I was thinking about when I saw the collecting the dots versus connecting the dots? Connecting yeah. the dots is really a, a kind of a framework I felt for your whole career in a way because you talk about this as brain plasticity that that's how the brain grows through yeah. connect connections but before before we go there mm-hmm. I, I thought people may think you so you're a 15 year old you bought a rabbit in the butchers yet dissected, <laughs> dissected the brain and you went i'm gonna be a scientist but that wasn't no, that was nothing. far from, far from the pathway no it was so okay so when i was at school and, and i'm sure many of your listeners will have sympathy with this um, I really hated science because, again, there was no – the way it was taught, and I think it still remains the case to a certain extent, uh, there was no room to have your own ideas. So um, I remember doing the amoeba, for example, you know, and you drew a circle, then you drew a kind of egg timer, then you drew two circles, and that was the amoeba reproducing, for example. Yeah? Um, or distilling water where you stenciled conical flasks and no one told me why that was an interesting thing to do, why you'd want to distill water, what was the point of having distilled water, and that was chemistry. Um, So there was no room to have any insights or thoughts, or and certainly it didn't seem to enrich my life in any way. I didn't know what distilled water was, and I thought the amoeba led a pretty boring life. So um, meanwhile, the humanities subjects, literature and history, had much more scope about why wars started, why people fell in love, what relationships were, how things changed or didn't change according to culture and era. And in particular, um, I got very attracted to Latin and Greek, to the classics, simply because those civilizations asked the truly big questions, like what is destiny, what is revenge, uh, how, what is free will? Um, those, you know, again, why the wars start? And because it was a very efficient way of doing it, the history and the literature were one and the same effectively. And on top of that, you could compare two very different scenarios, the Roman and the Greek Empire, that the whole thing had a completeness to it and exercised so many different skills and so many different aspects of human knowledge that you can see why in the old days the Victorians thought this was the really well-rounded, complete education. And 
I never for one minute have I ever regretted doing I did classics and maths, pure maths. And, and for me, that was the most exciting, wonderful, intellectually stretching, enlightening um, education. And meanwhile, the old um, algae and the spirogyra and the amoeba <laughs> and the distilled water, I mean, you can see that came nowhere close yeah. to what classics could offer. Um, the maths was just like doing Sudoku. That was just a sort of, a, you know, really mind-stretching thing on the side. But really, although to do maths, you need the same analytical powers as you do to deconstruct Latin and Greek sentences. So, again, it was all of a piece, and I thought I had a very well-rounded education that, you know, rehearsed many things and, of course, gave you a facility for languages, background to how languages work, how sentences work, which in turn help with writing. So things as mechanical as that, right through to lofty ideas about what is consciousness and you know what is an individual um, and it was that that prompted me to do the brain because i'm just so fascinated and stand in the physical basis of consciousness and, and what that is and how the subjective and the objective relate to each other yeah and you, you can see that you did this with your brain so connecting the dots again here you connected yeah. your left brain and your right brain <laughs> well, really, just... different sides like because i remember reading the odyssey i, I did classical studies as well I remember yeah, reading yeah. the honesty and just going, this would be the most amazing movie. <laughs> and just, yeah. you, you immersed yourself and you, you were Odysseus in it. You just exactly. And, now, and, I mean, compare, compare Odysseus with video game, for yeah. example. Yeah. Would it be much better if kids read Homer now in a written translation? Yeah, than, absolutely. You know, I mean, all these other kind of goody baddie things. Yeah. They, they, they lack a dimension somehow that, for example, Homer has you know where you have these layers of the gods and destiny and different people with their different forces and intertwining and how happenstance coincides with destiny at different times and how an individual survives those things and, you know i mean even when you're 11 you read that it's a big canvas to paint on you know compared to just sitting in front of a little screen playing some game that requires the attention span of a gnat yeah and before before we go there because i really would love our audience to hear about yeah. this because you you talk about this mind change is equivalent to climate change and i can absolutely yeah. agree with you and totally agree with you. but i just want to kind of finish how you got there so you you end up getting uh, an honorary um you got you yeah. got a grant to yeah. go to oxford yeah absolutely so, excelled yeah yeah so so what happened was i was born into working class family but another lucky break i had was my dad was jewish and um, without sounding too stereotyping, in Jewish culture, there is great respect for education. So um, although I was brought up in a secular way because my father wasn't actually religious, the cultural attitude of my Jewish side of my family and indeed my father to education and learning was one that wouldn't necessarily have been expected of someone of our socioeconomic standing. You know? So although we had no books in the house and we were dirt poor. We played chess a lot, we argued a lot, we debated a lot. Um, and I was always encouraged at school, you know, always to, to do what I like when I bought a school report home, my rich uncle would give me a ten shilling note, you know, as a reward. And I thought I was Lady Rothschild with that. Yeah. So um so it was that combination of a very supportive background but with no money that I think did it. And then I went to a very good school in London, an elite school in London, and then on to Oxford. Um, and did classics initially, but I got disappointed in philosophy because it was very linguistic and it didn't talk about consciousness. So I drifted from philosophy to psychology to physiology 
and ended up doing neuroscience, which for me was a very logical transition intellectually, but obviously um, surprises many when I say I don't have any basic science qualifications at all. I don't have any science O levels as they would have been in those days of science A levels. But that that's a huge advantage. Like I, I, when I when I when I read about you and your your background, I went straight away. I went to classics guides your mind in a certain way of thinking so you storytell naturally yeah exactly but again it comes to confidence you see it all comes down and and anyone who's done that in a group will know it's not an easy it's not easy to learn Greek. so once you've done that you can do anything you know um and it gives you a huge confidence um on things because you've mastered something that's not intrinsically logical in terms of the grammar song so when you come across something that is logical like science that's actually much more straightforward to do and it also gives you the confidence to come across new concepts um and new relations and joining up dots in new ways it gives you the confidence to do that so um I, for me it was it was a fantastic thing but actually as i say um i was really interested in and still am in what we mean by an individual and how that individual is conscious and how Aiden, you're different from me, you know, and what's going on as we're talking now inside your mind. You know, those things are really exciting, exhilarating questions to ask, I think. Yeah, and it also gets, what I see as well, like I'm sure you, you've had detractors who kind of go, oh, she's not pure science. Oh, she can't be. Oh, of course, and yeah. You, and you've, <laughs> you've written all these books and, and what you've done. Of course, I've detracted. There'd be something wrong. If I said, look, I've got you know a friend here who's got lots of original ideas and everyone agrees with them. I mean, would, how, when does that happen? Never. You know, I mean, to have detractors, if some as they challenge you courteously and not on a personal level, yeah. then that's a healthy thing. That's what scientists do all the time. You know, when we do our peer review papers, you know, they're subject to being criticized as I would criticize them. And it's only in that kind of crucible yeah. that you can work towards the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Although that is now a dirty word now, because of course the truth. So. And yeah. that, that confidence you talked about and the storytelling skills you picked up from the classics comes across in the books because the books are simplified so anybody can pick them mm. up and read them. And, and that, that really, I, for me, that, that shows a massive confidence, not I'm simplifying mm. it or dumbing it down. No, no. I'm actually telling it so you understand because I want to democratize this information. That's what sure. comes across. I love the way you're talking about stories because for me, this is the more I think about this, this is a really deep seated thing. And if you indulge me for a moment, if you think about why is a feeling different from a thought, what I've suggested is a feeling is just in the moment, whereas any thought has a beginning, a middle, and end, right? A equals B, B equals C, so A equals C. So you, with a thought, you end up in a different place to where you've started, as you would with a sentence, as you would with a story, as you would with a life story. And I think this linearity is very important for human beings because if you have a beginning, a middle, and end, you have to have a time window, which means you have to have time. You're not just emoting and being there in the moment and reacting. And I think the notion of stories resonates very deeply with all of us. If I said to you now, once upon a time, you know, you'd be great. We all are. I think stories are very important because they echo our lives, they echo our sentences, and they echo our thought processes. And therefore, the story is something that is a feature of every single civilization of humanity, probably Neanderthals told stories as well, because we know they drew cave drawings, I think. So yeah. So this notion of a story and making up a story, I think is a very important part of being human. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's the piece now going on to mind change as equivalent mm -hmm. to climate change. So I, I see this like 
like you have recognized and, and have been an advocate of is that there's a huge problem dwelling in the background this this mind change of the brain's plasticity is being yes. so the brain's actually being molded but based on the attention and focus we give to technology and actually the lack of focus because I, yeah. I, I actually I lecture and I asked the class does everybody here have a focus problem everybody put their hand up and I, mm. I can see it in adults now who have technology introduced into their lives and, and people kind of talk about content going back to storytelling oh you can't mm. you can't put long form content out on the web because people don't read it that's the yeah. problem that is the problem is that, well, is that, I mean I think the problem is certainly as you say in the classroom and that there's um, two really brilliant school teachers who contacted me from Washington um, and I think school teachers are a very good guide because they see different generations they're not biased as parents might be biased yeah um, they're not doing experiments as such but they are observing things like critical thinking and attention spans and these these two school teachers contacted me on the basis of that we've done a Google group called Beyond the Screens, which they started uh, because of their concern for the changes that they are seeing. And I, I take those changes very seriously, you know, and where people say, oh, there's no evidence. Um, there's never enough evidence, but I think there is evidence enough for concern, you know, from what people like these school teachers and many um, are, are adding to this. It's this um, inability to, um, to lead from the front to, to yourself, say, let's make up a game to be in control of what you yourself are doing as opposed to being renegated to being a sort of passive consumer of some web creators, you know, fantasy and some profit-making motive. You know, I find it very sad that, um, that the screens are perceived as glamorous and wonderful and so on, when are they not possibly um, getting the wrong result? You're turning the kids into second-rate computers because that's the environment that the kids are adapting to. Like I have children as well, seven-year-old and three-year-old, you can see the difference when they've been on a screen. So if they play a computer game like Minecraft, you talk about the physiological thing that happens that they get a dopamine spike, but you see them yeah. less patient later on, a bit irritable. Yeah. These things happen. Like so and, and you've actually added the science behind the sure. the facts. Sure. Yeah, I mean of course there's detractors because and that, that falls into two. One is people say there's no evidence. Now, that's like saying, you know, the sky's not blue. There is evidence. There may not be enough evidence. You may not like the evidence. You may disagree with it. That's separate from saying it doesn't exist. Yeah? So whilst I would concede we can always have room and time for collating more evidence, you can't say there's not, the evidence isn't there. Um, and moreover, just empirically, if one asks for evidence, I would challenge back the people who are great advocates of the screen. For example, um, to actually provide evidence that having iPads in classrooms, for example, is beneficial. Where is the study where you've taken kids of similar age and ability, divided them into two groups, given one not iPads for six months, the others not, and then showed that the iPad group performed better? That just hasn't been done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just an article of faith. It looks good to have kids, you know, swiping with their fingers. Um, you know, but... To the best of my knowledge, and perhaps someone could write in if they do know of experiments like one I've described have been done, but there's, <laughs> as far as I know, there haven't been. Yeah. So if one's going to say you need evidence, you need evidence also to support the fact that it's beneficial. Yeah. And, and just so everybody understands that's listened to the show, Susan, so I, I've talked before mm. about tabula rasa, like so you're born with this blank slate yes. and, and the inputs you get, and, mm. and this is why I think the childhood is so important. 
that everybody around mm. you is an influence that data going in yeah. you synthesize it and then you 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 put it out the way you do and that's right from from yeah. a screen perspective you've talked about that if you think about this right even let's use our storytelling analogy that goes through this chat mm -hmm. is yeah the kids aren't forming a story they're almost like stepping on the stage into the game where they have no they're using no other senses other than sight and he and their hearing yeah. so therefore they're yeah. losing out on learning and therefore they get these kind of add or artistic sure. uh, well, characteristics I think, I think they're losing out lots of things i mean for example if you and i say let's make up a game and you be this and you be that and uh, yeah, what you're doing there is you're rehearsing having a little identity and you're rehearsing when you play a game you're rehearsing a life story you know I'll do this and you go there and I'll be this and I'll be a dragon and you'll be the witch. And so, yeah. So, and what you're doing by that is very valuable because, first of all, you're developing an identity and you're in, again, you're in control of it, you know. And again, most probably you're experiencing all five senses as you do this if it's outside, running around. And as a, as a happy side effect, you're you know, reducing the chances of becoming a beast and all those other things. But there you are, you're, you're leading, you're, you're in control, it's your identity, it's your little rehearsing lifestyle. Whereas if you're there, stuck in front of the screen, A, you're not moving and developing basic motor skills, you're not stimulating your other three senses, and very much you are the consumer, you're the consumer of some profit-making program, yeah? You're not, you've, you have limited options. Yeah. Whereas anything is possible in, in five dimensions. You can do anything. A box can be absolutely anything, you know, yeah. if you like. And it can change halfway through. And you can and that power of imagination and attention and confidence and identity, um, obviously I, I feel quite strongly about this. I think those are things that can't be tested simply in an experiment, you know. Yeah. Um, and so when someone says, Where's the evidence? I think one needs to think about what kind of things you would expect to see your test. Yeah, let's frame that now in the way the world is going. So the collecting the dots world is being replaced by automation and artificial yeah. intelligence. So the future belongs to the people who ask the questions. It belongs to the people who connect the dots. And it belongs Indeed. to people who aren't sitting in front of a screen all day. Yeah, well, there's a brilliant quote. Um, if you've read my books, I think I actually quote it in, in Mind Change from Isaac Asimov. And in 1964, he predicted what life was going to be like 50 years hence. And there's this, people can look it up on the web. Look up Isaac Asimov, 1964. And he's about 50 years hence. And he said, the true elite of mankind will those who are creative, for they alone will do more than serve a machine. Serving a machine, I think, is not exercising the awful humanity. You're, you're turning yourself into a second-rate computer, basically. Yes. Or into... Or into a three-year-old, you know, who doesn't progress because you just have feelings and instant desires, you're emotionally volatile, you know, short attention span, slightly adversarial, not very good at empathy or relationships. The world doesn't mean very much, you take it very literally. Yeah. And there you are, trapped in the moment, you know. And I personally wouldn't want that. And I think that such people will be very vulnerable to uh, the few who don't, yeah. who, who are thinking and planning. So, so how do you? So you've you've actually plotted how you see it panning out in twenty one twenty one, and mm. and I'd I'd love to just hear that as a, as a finale for this chat. How you how you see it panning out, but how how you see <laughs> the human succeeding in the world yeah, that's yeah. machine dominated. Well, it, was a it, it was a dystopia, and of course, um, 
I, I, it's something I always wanted to do, write a novel, you know, and I did it. So there we are. That was in the bucket list. But basically, I, I, I etched out two caricature scenarios in the year 2121. And one was of the type I've just described, the emotionally volatile, the perpetual child who lives for sensation, who has sensational times, which sounds great. But after a while, I think unremitting fun can be very boring if you're just having fun all the time, you know, if you're just having sensation all the time. And it has no meaning because I think human beings are in a search for meaning. And as an aside, um, I've often wondered why that might be perhaps the popularity of tattoos because people are seeking something permanent in their life in right. some sense of identity. But that's that's just an aside. Just a, so, so that's one possibility. The other um, in my mind were these people that were over-cerebral, that never let themselves go, that never blew their minds, that lived in a world that was so planned out and so cerebral. Um, they have no direct feelings. And of course, you need both. And again, back to the classics, there's a play by Euripides called The Bacchae, which is just about that. It's about the wine force and the bread force, as he calls it, and how human beings need that balance. And if you don't have the balance, then, um, you know, perils await you. Right. But so, um, so for me, yes, I think what we're in danger of is a world that seeks desperately identity and meaning. You only have to listen to the news and look around you. Everyone wants a meaning to their thing. But at the same time, the environment in which they're placed is one that just gives them sensation and here and now returns rather than any deep-seated significance or, or, or strong sense of confidence. You know, and I think that you know, there's always room to change. You know, as long as we recognize this and think about it, then we can, you know, the technology should be our servant, not our master, and that we should be our, it should be a means to an end, yeah. not an end in itself. But then again... We do have to decide collectively what, what what we want the end to be. Yeah, and and one last thing. So, because the, 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 with the brain's plasticity means that it can be molded one way, but it also can be re reverted. So it can actually be yeah. brought the other way. So that's yeah, there's a really there's a really nice study from a year or two ago actually where they took preteens who were obsessively used in digital devices, and they all scored very poorly on um, social interaction. And then half of them were sent off to summer camp just for five days. And they significantly improved their skills on that. So um, the, the, the mantra is the brain adapts to whatever it's rehearsing or whatever it needs to do. And if suddenly you're in a summer camp with no digital devices, you'll adapt to that and be good at that. And if, and if you're not needing to establish empathy and look someone in the eye and give them a hug, then you're not going to be very good at it because you're not rehearsing it. So, um, so the brain will always adapt and always evolve. And that's what it means, again, to be human, is that that's what makes you unique because no one else is living your life, only you. That's a beautiful way to, to finish <laughs> off today. Uh, so, Professor Baroness Susan Greenfield, it's been an honor talking to you. We could talk all well, day. Well, I've enjoyed it. Thank I, you. I look forward to part two maybe in a few months. Lovely. I, love, I love your accent. I can't thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Likewise. Take care. And, okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.